Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. We've got a lot to talk about because travel is kind of, it's almost here, guys, I think. I don't know. Maybe it sounds like, but the airlines and governments are preparing. So I wanted to first get into the topic of our COVID passports on the way. Let me get into what that technology and what the logistics of putting in something like that in place around the world is going to look like. Then I want to talk a little bit about creating an NFT. Many of you have been asking me about NFTs. Uh, it seems like it's a very popular topic these days. And uh, through your tweets, I've gotten some questions about how to actually make an NFT. Well, I went through that entire process earlier this week, and I want to explain kind of what it takes and how much it costs, because yes, it is not free to create an NFT. Finally, we've got a couple of just random travel stories, but this one caught my eye that I want to talk about. Would you take a flight to nowhere? Well, Qantas is offering one and uh, to boost people's interest in travel again. And uh, I want to explain what that what that even means. But uh, a, a flight to nowhere is a thing and it might be a thing that you can try. Plus, England is finding people for taking vacations abroad and the rainbows are really different in Hawaii. And I'm going to tell you why. But first, I want to talk about vaccine passports. As more of us get vaccinated around the world, there's going to have to be a way to track people who are vaccinated. So if you want to go to a concert or board a flight to a certain country or cross an international border or do all of those things that we used to do normally without thinking about it, there's got to be a way to track those people who have been vaccinated and can do those things safely. So last week, New York introduced what they're calling their first COVID-19 wallet. Essentially, the way this works is you can either get a code on your phone or a printout. You can prove that you've been recently tested negative or that you've been successfully vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. So essentially, like you would with an online boarding pass, you will have this code on your phone. You'll get, let's say, go to Madison Square Garden for, let's say, a basketball game. You'll then have that code scanned and the operator is then going to see a green check or a red X on their phone to show whether or not you've either been vaccinated or tested negative recently for the COVID-19 virus. And the way this works is essentially you download the Excelsior Pass, you enter your name, date of birth, and zip code, answer a few questions to confirm your identity, and the data is then pulled from the state's vaccination registry and will be linked to testing data from a number of pre-approved testing companies. The New York system is built on IBM's digital health pass platform, which is provided via blockchain technology, so neither IBM or any businesses will have access to private medical information. An entertainment venue will simply have to scan the QR code and get a green check or the red X. The plan is part of a growing but very, very disjointed effort to provide vaccine passports or certifications so people won't have to hang on to a dog-eared piece of paper, worry about privacy or forgeries, or even fork over extra cash prove that they are not contagious. Now the article goes on to say what the biggest problem is going to be is linking all of these different passports. I'm using passports in quotes that you can't see because you're listening to me obviously, but linking all of this data so that one code can be scanned by one operator can also work across a bunch of different operators. So New York has their Excelsior pass. What happens when Florida creates a pass? California not to mention Canada, UK, and all the other countries around the world. How is that all going to work? How are they going to be able to tie that data in is not clear right now. 
Another thing that's not clear are the standards that everyone will be going by. So when we say successful vaccine, do we mean two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, for example, and then after that two weeks? So after your second dose, after two weeks, are you then good to go? What if you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? That's only one dose. Does that count as well? Oh, and what about a negative test? So if you've taken a test, how long is it 48 hours before you travel? Is it 72? There are going to have to be some agreements or standards set so that all of these apps are basically saying the same thing. Otherwise, then we're going to have a little bit of variation between them, and that's really not going to sort of serve the purpose that these passports are trying to do. Now, this particular article talks about resistance to the idea of having to prove vaccination because, for example, in the United States, it's only required for schools for the most part, but it's not ever been required where you need to show proof of vaccination to go to a football game or some other place where a bunch of people are going to be in a small area. So the public opinion is still out on this. And there are two sides of the coin of using blockchain technology, of course. But scammers are already selling fake CDC vaccination ID cards on sites like Craigslist, eBay. You can find those forgeries and some cards are being sold up to $200. You've probably heard stories about people using those cards and getting caught. Not a really good idea and it's not exactly going to protect you from the virus. So there's got to be some sort of way to prove uh, that in a way that's not easily forgeable that you have been vaccinated. And I think a vaccine passport seems set. But... I would say from my soapbox here, I would say that it probably would make sense rather than doing it on a state-by-state -state basis to do it on a national basis and then have that standard be set by those countries either through the UN or some other global organization where all of the countries' passports can be tied to each other or at least use the same set of standards so that these passports actually mean something useful. But my advice to any of you who have already been vaccinated right now would be to hold on to any proof of vaccination that you have from your first shot and your second shot, any cards, any forms, anything that you get, hold on to those. I would hold on to those for a good period of time. Don't throw them away in a month or two. I think you're going to need those for a while, both to prove that you have been vaccinated and if a pass does roll out, you might need a paper backup for some reason. Uh, depending on where you're getting registered, but also if you need to travel in the immediate future where there are no vaccine passports, where those haven't been developed, then having those pieces of paper are really going to do you some good and going to help you when you travel. So just hold on to those, keep them in a safe place next to your passport or your driver's license, or just somewhere where you have easy access to them, where you might need to show proof of vaccination. And finally, to add just how confusing this can all get, British Airlines is developing their own passport so passengers can prove they are safe to travel once they've been vaccinated against COVID. Quote from the BBC, under the plans, people who have had both jabs will be able to register their status on BA's smartphone app. The airline's chief executive, Sean Doyle, hailed the UK's, quote, great progress in tackling the pandemic. And British Airways is not the first airline to come up with this concept. A lot of other airlines, Qantas included, are developing their own passports, their own digital passports. And again, it comes down to, are we going to have to register for a variety of different airlines? So am I going to have to register for five different airlines if I'm taking five different airlines with their different apps to show that I've been vaccinated? And of course, when that happens, people are less likely to do it or more likely to try to cheat around the system. That seems like a big pain to have to register for. Let's say I'm going to 
fly to the U.S. on two different airlines and then go through four different states. I want to see a basketball game in each state, for example. Obviously, the NBA is not open, but go with me here. So I'm doing that now. I've got to register with both airlines, the countries I'm flying through, and then all of those different states for you know those venues to be able to prove that I've been vaccinated. You see, you see how messy this is getting. So uh, there is still yet to be seen. I think it can go one of either two ways. I think either there's going to be some standard adopted, or I think everybody's going to go, this is such a big pain, can't figure this out, and it's going to be a very niche thing where you're going to be able to just show a piece of paper and then not have to show the app. And they're also, not to mention, people who don't have smartphones. So, you know, there are all these things that are complicating the issue, but uh, it looks like it looks like everyone's going to try. So we will keep an eye on it and I'll let you know how those vaccine passports progress. All right. So we've talked about NFTs for the last two episodes. They've come up and I think a lot of you, a lot of us are starting to get under the notion or sort of get the notion of what an NFT is. Basically, you know, using an example of where it's been very popular is digital art. And yes, you can... Like, let's say I take a picture of the Taj Mahal, right? I can sell that as an NFT. Can you copy that from my website? Sure, you can. But only one person owns that NFT. Or I can make 10 NFTs of that, you know, of that same picture. But there are only 10 of them. There are only so many NFTs made by me, the creator of that piece of work. It's like NBA Top Shots is selling GIFs, GIFs. I think it should be GIFs because it's graphic. But you know what I mean, of uh, highlight plays from the NBA now, you can just grab those off the internet. You can make your own GIF of whatever you want, but there's only one that's been signed by the NBA. So think of it as sort of an autograph for digital merchandise, which is going to really change how things are done on the internet. I, I think uh, we've mentioned it in past episodes that you'll be able to sell digital art. It opens things up for people who are creators online. It also makes a good way to have things like a passport that is truly digital. Oh boy, isn't that isn't that exciting? Wouldn't it be great to be able to tie vaccine passports into that? But I digress. Anyway, there are a lot of uses for NFTs. And if you haven't brushed up on NFTs, uh, I recommend you check out the past two episodes where I go into depth on what they are and how they work. But when it gets to the nitty gritty of an NFT, how do you actually make one? I think a lot of people are confused on what on how that process works. So I went ahead and did it. Now, there's gonna be two of you, two camps of you. One, people, and I think it's gonna be a small, it's not gonna be a lot of you, but I think people who are familiar and who have traded in things like Bitcoin or Ethereum or other digital currencies. People who are familiar with wallets for digital currencies and people who have maybe heard of it but not used it. I'm gonna guess most of you haven't used those digital currencies and when it comes to creating an NFT, because you have to use one of those digital currencies as well as you have to use a, a wallet for those digital currencies, there's a learning curve there. That's probably the most difficult part of creating NFT. After you have your, you know, your Ethereum coin, you can make your own NFT. The creating the NFT part is easy. So let me at a very high level, let me walk you through this process from someone who you want to create an NFT of a piece of digital art that you've made or a photo and you want to try to sell it to people and make millions and millions of dollars like everybody else on the internet. 
So let's go along with this. Let's start with the first step. The first thing you need to do is set up an Ethereum wallet. Now there's a couple of these. I tried all of them. I, well, not all of them, but I tried a bunch of them to see which one worked best. I kind of really fell down to Coinbase wallet. That's kind of the one that I stuck with. Now there is the Coinbase app and Coinbase wallet. Do not make the same mistake that I did when I first set this up of doing things on Coinbase and then using a Coinbase wallet. You don't necessarily need both. You just need the wallet. So what the wallet does, and when I say wallet, you just download an app or you can go online, but for Coinbase, there's an iOS Android version. There's also a, you know, a website you can log into. And what you do there is, and this is gonna take about 15 minutes. You need to set up an account. You need to then tie it to either a bank account or your uh, debit card. And when you do that, that process involves them you know, putting in like 10 cents or 20 cents, two figures that are about a dollar or $2 to verify that you own that account. So you set up your account, set up your debit card, for example, then 15 minutes later, you're gonna get these two deposits. You then need to enter those two deposits on the Coinbase app, and then it's gonna verify that you are who you say you are. You then can expand your limits. The limits are a few hundred dollars, I think, for debit cards, for bank transfers, it's a ten or $20,000. It depends, but your account is going to be limited at first. So you've created your account. They've deposited two numbers, two small you know, amounts of money, like $0.52 cents and $0.48, cents, for example. You then enter those back into Coinbase and your Coinbase wallet, and then now you're verified. To increase the limits and the things you can do with your Ethereum coin, then you can send them your driver's license, a picture of your driver's license through the app. So front and back or other piece of ID. And those are financial, those are basically things that are, you know, uh, implant, implemented by the financial regulations. So if you can prove who you are at a deeper level, like with, you know, a photo of your ID and the app will walk you through all of this, you can then increase the spending limits that you have. So hopefully that, that, that seems pretty straightforward. Uh, it's a little bit of a long-winded explanation, but now you have your coin wallet, your Coinbase wallet. When you open up your Coinbase wallet, you're going to see things like Bitcoin and other kinds of coin. But what you need to make an NFT is Ethereum. It is essentially a different kind of digital coin. So what you want to do is it's a different cryptocurrency that you want to use. You want to go to Ethereum, you basically click that in the app and then it asks you how much do you want to spend how much actual real tangible physical money do you want to spend on this cryptocurrency and it depends on a few things but let's just assume you're going to make an nft now i would say you need to make an nft at least 200 dollars, and i'm going to explain why i'm using that amount you can buy any amount of ethereum you want that's not a problem what you do is with your debit card, you're going to buy $200 worth of Ethereum, which is going to be calculated into some currency of Ethereum, some percentage of Ethereum, right? Some percentage of an Ethereum coin. The ratio, the conversion rate between Ethereum and US dollars changes a lot. So as I was going through this process, I went through it a couple times. So I would try $200 of Ethereum, and then it would be worth so much uh, coin, so much uh, Ethereum coin, and then it would change every time 
I went through the process. I was just testing it out and setting it up. Literally every five seconds, it would change by a few cents up or down, but it's a highly variable currency. So whatever it is today, as you're listening to this, it's not going to be the same five minutes from now when you're listening to this or in a week, it can change a lot. So you don't want to really hold on to your Ethereum too long if you're going to make an NFT because the rates might change on you and they might not change in a way that's favorable for what you want to do. So now you have $200 of Ethereum. That means $200 US dollars that, for example, left your bank account and is now being traded as Ethereum and it is now stored in your Coinbase wallet. So there you go. You now have the Ethereum you need. Now you need to connect that wallet to an NFT marketplace. There are several different NFT marketplaces. One is Rarible. I used OpenSea for this. They all have their different advantages or disadvantages. I found OpenSea to be fairly straightforward to use. I think Rarible is a little bit easier, but those are two of the big ones. There's also one called Nifty Gateway and Super Rare and Zora. You can try any of those, but I was using OpenSea. So I'm now on the OpenSea website and I am connecting my Coinbase wallet to OpenSea. When you do that, there's a QR code that's going to pop up and then you are going to tie your Coinbase wallet to that QR code on OpenSea. It then ties OpenSea to your Coinbase wallet. OpenSea is then going to create an account for you on OpenSea based on that Coinbase wallet, that scan. Now they are tied together. So if you want to change your, something to your account, it then needs to be verified through your Coinbase wallet. So something's going to pop up on your Coinbase wallet and say, do you approve this change? And by change, what it is, is you set up your, like a shop. It's like setting up an online web store. You set up your name and the things that you want to sell. You can upload a whole bunch of different photos and anything you want. They're not NFTs yet. So you can create the storefront. You can upload your digital art. What you want to do is now create the NFT. So you have your digital art that's up there, um, but you want to sell it. So in order to sell it, you're going to have to create an NFT. That's what OpenSea is for. So let's take this photo of the Taj Mahal as an example. I have now created that as an NFT. So the way I want to do that is I go into OpenSea and I can do it as either an auction or sell it at a flat rate, so a minimum bid and leave it open for offers. If I do it as an auction, I can set the minimum price and then I can set a percentage. So the way the percentage works is, let's say I set it to 5%, anytime that NFT is sold, anytime, I will get 5%. It doesn't matter who owns it. If I own the NFT and I sell it for, let's say, $100, it gets bought by somebody else, I get those $100, right? or the equivalent Ethereum. I gotta then convert that Ethereum to US dollars, but you, you kind of get where I'm going. I've now sold that NFT for $100. I get $100, yay, minus fees and all that. Then what happens is if that person sells that NFT for $1,000 or $50 or whatever, I get 5% of that transaction. That is for the life of that NFT. That is, really different than how a lot of things work in real life and online, but you can see how people can maybe use these NFTs to, um, to make money. Now, I did mention that NFTs cost money to make, 
And if you heard my last episode about the environmental impact of NFTs, you know that it requires a lot of computational power to make an NFT for the blockchain. And an NFT has something called a gas fee. Essentially what a gas fee is the cost of that computational power that fluctuates to make an NFT. For me, for my test of making an NFT, the gas fee for one photo was $150. That was the cost to make an NFT. It didn't cost me anything to open a Coinbase wallet. I had to buy $200 worth of Ethereum, which $150 I used for the gas fee. That's the fee to create the NFT. Now I have my NFT, I paid the gas fee, I've set up the percentage I want. You don't have to set up a percentage, but you can, It obviously that makes sense. And then you can set up as an auction and sell your NFT on your store. And there you go and just wait for bids. And that's pretty much the basic concept. If I'm gonna boil this down again, if I'm gonna recap this very, very, very high level, I'm gonna say how to create an NFT. Number one, download, download a Coinbase wallet or some other cryptocurrency wallet, it doesn't matter. But Coinbase wallet is what I used. Then I'm going to buy Ethereum, about $200 worth of Ethereum based on the rates of like right now. So based on those rates, then I'm going to head over to one of the marketplaces for NFTs. In my case, it was OpenSea. I'm going to then connect my wallet to OpenSea and create an account there and make a storefront. Once I made my storefront, I can then upload my photo that I want to sell as an NFT. Now that I am there, I can then create that uh, photo and make it an NFT. When I do that, I'm going to have to pay what's called a gas fee. That gas fee is the processing power, the cost to create the NFT computationally. That fluctuates. In my case, it was $150. I paid the $150. And now I have an NFT that I can either sell on OpenSea as an auction or as a one-time fee and if I want, I can get a percentage of the sales for the life of that NFT. That's basically it. I think the most complicated part, like I said in the beginning, was trying to understand that you have to buy Ethereum to make this all work. You can't, you can't just spend $200 from your debit card directly and make an NFT. You have to use a cryptocurrency. That's where the wallets come in. If you're familiar with cryptocurrencies, I think this is gonna be pretty straightforward for you. I think for everybody else, you know, depending on your familiarity and your comfort with technology and this kind of stuff, you know, it's going to take you like an hour or two the first time. I, you know, there's there's trying to figure out how to move money between your bank account and the wallet and back again, and then connecting with OpenSea. And these things take time and there, there's kind of a lag sometimes creating the account and, and making everything sync up. It's going to take you an hour or two, but once you get it set up, then, then you can start selling NFTs. And I don't know if you heard this story, but somebody made an NFT kind of as a gag or a troll and made $500,000. It's literally just a picture of a red square. So so there you go. That's that's how that works. But I think it was a great exercise to learn about cryptocurrencies. I think if you're interested in NFTs, download a wallet, just check it out. You don't actually have to spend any money. The wallets are free. You can see, you know, buy a dollar or two of, of a cryptocurrency and, and play around with it. It's kind of fun, interesting, and uh, clearly a growing part of our future. So uh, I'd recommend if you want, just play around with it, just use $5 or don't use any money, but just check out how those wallets work and maybe head over to OpenSea or Rarible 
and just take a look through those uh, NFT marketplaces. You might, you might find something that you like. All right, now I've got just a couple of short stories, just things that I came across that I, I wanted to, to sort of spew out at you and, and, and sort of get those off of the list that I had. But there's something that I came across that I think is interesting. The England, sorry, I was going to say the UK, but England will find people $7,000 for going abroad. So this is legislation that has been kicking around in England. It was announced last week on Monday. It will be voted on by Parliament as the, by the time you're listening to this, and it would impose a fine of $6,900 on anyone leaving England without a reasonable excuse. Non-essential travel is currently banned in England under the stay-at-home order. Anyone leaving the country needs to fill out a travel declaration form declaring the nature of their trip. This is from Matador Network. Upon their return home, UK residents are grilled by Border Patrol about the reason for their trip. Um, yeah, I think if you, you know, I think it's going to be pretty easy to tell who's gone on vacation. Where are you going? What's the destination? Do you have a ridiculous time when you return? You know, those kind of things. I think they're going to be able to figure out pretty quickly whether or not you're leaving on vacation, especially considering that most countries around the world are in some form of lockdown still and have restrictions and so on. But we don't know if this law has passed by the time you're listening to this. It aims to dissuade people from taking vacations abroad and then increasing the virus's transmission at home with the new variants that are spreading across the world. These restrictions, if passed by Parliament, will be reviewed on April 12th, then again every 35 days. So if you are in England, then maybe take a take a staycation. Maybe that, that's, that's going to work out better for you because uh, $7,000 is... Not that much Ethereum, but uh, it's still a lot of money. So uh, there you go. That's one way to stop people from traveling abroad. But Qantas, on the other hand, has a very interesting way to try to boost tourism called mystery flights. So these are in an effort to boost domestic tourism across Australia and spark nostalgia. From the BBC, the day trips where passengers don't know what the destination is when they are boarding were popular in the 1990s. Airlines across the region are coming up with different strategies to tackle the pandemic-induced travel slump, with Thai Airways announcing this week it will slash its workforce by 50%. Obviously, the downturn has led governments to bailouts, collapses, huge job cuts. Uh, it's not been good for the travel industry. It's been devastating, actually, I can say. So places like Australia, where they've closed their borders and the coronavirus is very much under control is trying to figure out a way to boost uh, its domestic tourism. So these flights to nowhere can take off and land at the same airport after a low-level flyby of iconic, iconic Australian landmarks. The mystery flights are the Australian Airlines' latest tactic to woo more passengers in flying. Flights will be on one of three Qantas Boeing 737 planes from Brisbane, Melbourne, or Sydney with an economy fare beginning at Looks like 577 US dollars. The all-day package includes activities that range from winemaking and gourmet lunches to snorkeling on tropical islands. With international borders unlikely to reopen in Australia until 2022, Qantas has asked the government for certainty over domestic travel now that Australia's COVID-19 vaccine rollouts are underway. Quote, travelers are confused by the patchwork of rapidly changing restrictions and understandably worried about being locked out of their own home state 
or intended destination. So these flights to nowhere uh, seem seem like a interesting way to kind of make a trip out of something. Um, personally, it, it sounds like, you know, it would be nicer to have a flight somewhere where you go somewhere where you don't know where you're going to go. I think that would be kind of interesting. Um, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos and things around that nature, but just flying the plane around just to take a look at, at uh, iconic sites seems seems like the airlines would probably lose more money on fuel doing that, you know, but hey, the, the travel industry and the airlines have to do, have to try a bunch of different things. And that sounds, sounds kind of interesting. I, I would like something where you, you have a mystery flight, you don't know where you're going to end up. That, that, that's probably just me though. And maybe a handful of you, I don't think that would, that would hit the masses, but it might be, might be kind of fun, you know, you get on a plane, you just end up in, I don't know, just the, the rainforest of somewhere else, South America, like, That'd be kind of interesting. Probably everyone would hate that because they wouldn't know what to pack and it might freak people out. But uh, this is, this is a, I guess, the next best thing. All right, finally, this was interesting to me. This is from Science Friday, and it is why Hawaii's rainbows really are different. So we've all, hopefully, we've all seen a rainbow. Uh, you know, they are caused by the scattering of light through water. That usually requires a bit of rain or moisture in the air the sun, and usually some clouds. It's usually how that all works. It's a combination of those things. Uh, th those are the, that's the highest level basic physics of a rainbow that I can describe. But rainbows are not the same everywhere. Some places get more rainbows than others, and some places get more vibrant rainbows than others. And as you've guessed right now, Hawaii is one of those places. Hawaii gets a lot of rainbows. I've ne personally never been to Hawaii. I'm imagining if you have you probably have seen a rainbow based on this article. Now, it turns out you need a couple things for a really good rainbow. One is having the raindrops be more or less uniform in size. So the more brilliant the rainbow are where the colors are more distinct, and that tends to happen more when you have raindrops that are more or less the same size. That was news to me. I thought it's raining. I thought the raindrops would all kind of be the same size, but apparently the uniformity varies between different types of rain. Now, the refraction and reflection of light results in a 42 degree angle. So if the sun is at your back and you look at the shadow of your head, the rainbow is 42 degrees above that point. That's how you can tell where the rainbow would be. A lot of times the rainbow is going to actually be below the horizon, so you can't see it. But that's where the rainbow would be. That's a, that's a good uh, thing to remember. If you want to try to find out or figure out on a rainy day where it's stormy and there's a little bit of sun, and you, you know there's going to be a rainbow, you can kind of try to figure out where it's going to be with that simple test. And in Hawaii, the conditions are specifically good for rainbows. One, it has a bunch of trade winds, cumulus, cloud coverage, mountainous terrain, and very clean air all contribute to rainbow sightings on the Hawaiian islands. The mountain peaks force the trade winds from the ocean to rise and cool, creating an open pattern with rain showers and holes in the clouds for the sun to enter. This is unlike places in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, where there's a lot of rain, but stratiform clouds block out the sun. Additionally, Hawaii is known for its clean marine air. With the exception of some volcanic haze, it has a very clean atmosphere because it is so far away from other pollution sources, and that with a lot of strong sunshine results in a very brilliant rainbow. And these rainbows are so common, they are actually on the license plate of Hawaii, and they play the role of the University of Hawaii's mascot, the Rainbow Warriors. 
I'm going to leave a link to this article in the show notes because I think you should take a look. It talks a lot about the different traditions and the indigenous cultures, sort of uh, uh, traditions about rainbows and, and what those mean. And it also has a moving photo or a gif. Yeah, I said gif. I said gif. Um of a rainbow that stays in one place. So basically you can climb up on this peak and as the clouds move over, there's pretty much a rainbow there all the time. And I'll leave a link so you can find out where that peak is and check out the app Rainbow Chase, which utilizes radar weather information and helps users in Hawaii determine if they can see a rainbow nearby. Uh, that is great. So makes me want to take a trip to Hawaii and see all those rainbows, get some different kind of fresh air and I hope it makes you wanna hopes it makes you wanna travel too. But if you've been to Hawaii, feel free to let me know. I've, feel free to share your rainbow pictures with me on Twitter at Fox Nomad. I'd love to see them. I uh, I asked for some of your I asked the people. So I have a newsletter that comes out every other week, and I get a lot of replies from the newsletter. It's really fun to read everybody's responses. It's one of the best things, one of the most fun things that I I do really is is, is getting the newsletter responses. But I asked people who had never replied to the newsletter to just write me anything. I don't care how short, how long, whatever. And I got some of the best responses ever. It was so much fun. People were sending me photos from where they are in the world, what they were doing. It was just really interesting and, and really nice to sort of have that connection back because a lot of these interactions are kind of one way, right? It's me talking and you listening. But if you have rainbow photos from Hawaii or wherever you happen to be in the world, you know, send them to me in an email podcast at foxnomad.com or through Twitter at foxnomad or send me a rainbow. How about that? S send me a rainbow my way. And if I see one, I'll know that you sent it. All right. Enough about that. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. Got a lot of great episodes coming up. A lot of great videos happening over on YouTube that I'm excited about, especially the one about synchronization. And you know what? I can tell you now. It's probably out. It's about India's time zones and India's time zones are weird. And if you've ever been to India, you know they're weird. If you've ever made a call to India, you probably have realized that the time zone there is weird. I'm going to explain to you why that is. So you can check that out over on YouTube at Fox Nomad. But for now, until the next episode, I, have, I hope you have a great rest of your day. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.